Hey, Scene Vault listeners, are you a NASCAR collector? Well, we've got two great magazines for you. First up, we've got the 75 Greatest Drivers. Last season, NASCAR added 25 drivers to its Greatest Drivers list to celebrate their diamond anniversary, and we partnered with them to help tell their legendary tales. This 116-page magazine is packed with the stories that made each of these drivers the greatest we have ever seen. Printed in full color on glossy paper and delivered to fans inside a poly bag to protect its contents, this magazine will sit on the coffee tables of NASCAR fans for years to come. There are also several different covers to collect, including unique designs for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, and more. We've also got a few remaining copies of the 75th Anniversary Magazine, featuring hundreds of pages of photos, profiles, iconic stories, and much, much more covering every single year of NASCAR. Both of these are shipping in high-quality poly bags to protect your collector's item. Get yours today at dailydownforce.com shop. That's dailydownforce.com shop. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this, this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast.
Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Scene Vault Podcast, where Ali Frazier will always be the undercard to Kel, Bobby, and Donnie. <laughs> well said. You're going to have to help me come up with some of these, Steve. Uh, okay, I'll do my best. <laughs> Steve, it is my goal here on the Scene Vault Podcast to someday be able to hire a sound engineer because not two minutes ago, I was in a dead panic because I could not hear us talking over our microphones. Now, why don't you tell everybody what the problem was? Well, the problem was you had uh, your earphones were not plugged in. Oh, uh-huh, that's it. Yeah. And you know what? I don't know a thing about all this equipment you got here, but even I knew that. <laughs> so that is our goal, to someday be able to hire a sound engineer who knows what the heck they're doing. We'll be taking applications. <laughs> now, Steve, I do want to report a little bit of news. We're seeing a little bit of life on Patreon and PayPal. Excellent. Yes, we are. New supporters this week include Matt Gross, Neil Modishard, Tim Yeager, Aiden McHugh, and Scott Cole. Now, also on PayPal, we got support from Robert Laird, Florian Dvorsky, David Taylor, Mark Dean, Joe Matern, and you might want to sit down for this, Steve. Oh. A couple of guys by the name of Mark Martin and Bobby Hillen. How about that? <laughs> that is crazy. Bobby and Mark. Well, thank you, gentlemen. You know, Mark sent some support on PayPal and then tweeted out. Now, the tweeting out thing... Mm-hmm. was as good as actual support because he said in his tweet, please join me in supporting the preservation of our racing history. I'm sure any amount would be helpful. And that was huge. That was very huge. And, you know, Mark and I have talked several times since both of us left active duty, shall we call it, and uh, we get along great. Now, Steve, it almost, almost made me feel bad for griping all those years in scene about Winston Cup drivers dominating in the Bush Series. Almost made me feel yeah. bad. Well, <laughs> I'm glad you said almost because guess what NASCAR did about it all those years? Zero. <laughs> well, they did a little bit. Did a little bit. Now, if you could consider joining such an illustrious group as our patron supporters and or on PayPal, the Patreon address is patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you'd rather not do a monthly commitment, a one-time deal would be awesome as well. That address is paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Steve, we have so much in this episode that I can't wait to talk about because Buddy Parrott, another segment of his interview is just mind-blowing oh yeah you know and it starts out in the first couple of minutes where he kind of drops a little bit of a bombshell about what happened with his split with Diegard. so in a nutshell won't you tell our listeners what they've got to look forward to well they've got a whole lot to look forward to that uh, split from Diegard, as you're talking about his relationship with daryl waltrip that was Growing a little bit sour, but Daryl did something for but it did quite contrary to anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And all the rumors about, uh, oh, fixing races and stuff like that. So, <laughs> oh, I, it's the pretty plot good. pickings. It's yeah. pretty good stuff. And also, he does a mean Tommy Ellis impersonation. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> this I've got to hear. Yeah, you absolutely do. Also, we have an email from a listener that we're going to jump into about some of NASCAR's lesser-known drivers like Buddy Arrington and team owners like Junie Dom Levy. Let's go ahead and jump into it. All right. <laughs> 
you wind up losing the championship to Richard. And a few days later, it comes out in the newspaper that you've been let go. What happened? Richard was my friend. And I actually went over and sat at the bar. And this is one thing I want to tell you about people not knowing what the heck they're talking about or or assuming. But uh, everybody swore that I was scheming with Richard how that I was going to throw the race or something because and uh, but I'm not going to tell you which one of those the guy with the last name started with a G uh, one of them started that rumor okay <laughs> that I I was the one that threw the race well you worked for Bill Gardner <laughs> I worked for two gardeners Jim and yeah. Bill so again. Uh, to leave it on, leave it in a, on a um, situation where people still wonder about it. I'll just say their last name started with a G. Well, he, uh, they fired me. So uh, I can tell you one thing. You know, uh, everybody worked for the, the little bit of bonus and all that you get at the end of the year. We didn't have a lot of money, and uh, of course, Daryl was. Daryl knew knew my whole family and he used to come eat dinner with Judy. Judy would make tacos and he'd come and eat with us. He loved Judy's tacos and uh, and all. But um, well, Daryl personally wrote me a check, gave me a a bonus that year, and um, told me things gonna be all right, buddy. I said, oh, I hope so. Now was this before or after you'd been let go? That was after I was let go. But Daryl gave me money for my to buy Brad and Todd's Christmas. After that, I get a call. Bill Gardner wants to meet with me. But I had to had to fly all the way up to Connecticut or wherever they're from, you know, to meet with them. Had a meeting with them. Explained to a lot of things, which I'm not going to get in on the uh, on the interview with this deal because a lot of it was said that I probably don't even remember. But it was a meeting, okay? I'll just say that. So I was called back to go to work. So the end result of that meeting was you were rehired. Yeah. So by the time the next season rolled around, you were right back in the pits. Won the first race. <laughs> won the first race at Riverside. Yeah, you went two of the first three races yeah. that year. But almost immediately, there seems to be this big controversy where the Gardeners are going to start a second team with Don Whittington. And that kind of you know blew up, and there was a lot of coverage on it in Grand National Scene. But in June... You're let go again. Yep. And in the next week's Grand National Scene, buddy, you sound, you sounded pretty relieved, to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, I was. I uh, I, I think uh, two times was enough, you know. And uh, but um, but I knew where I knew where Daryl's mind was. I knew where his heart was, and it was not at Die Garden. Okay. And so along with that, he did me a favor. In a way, he gave me a little leeway of find me another deal because if Daryl hadn't been, if Daryl, if Daryl had left Digard, then I'd have found me somewhere to go because I had the same feelings. I could get into a lot of things and tell you why I had those feelings, but I'm not going to do that. Okay. I'm going to leave that. I'm going to leave that for people to, to, um, to think about. I know I have. But it caused Daryl and I enough 
friction between the two of you. Oh yeah, yeah, and and that's all I can say. Um, right now, uh, he came up to me when he was voted into the Hall of Fame, and I went up and congratulated him, and he told me he loved me. You know, and I said, Daryl, you don't love, you don't love anybody except Stevie. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe his dogs. He had two. He had two dogs, uh, Frank Cannon and uh, and another one. Uh, those uh, Basset Hound. I used to, have to take care of them. Put cotton in their ears at the racetrack and all that. Tell me about the years between leaving Diegard and joining Richard Petty's deal at Curb Racing at the beginning of the 1984 season. Actually, see, I was with uh, Rutman. I had Rutman, and uh, and then I had uh, 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 Morgan Shepard all all along there before the Petty thing. We should have won the Daytona 500 with Rutman. You know, Rutman to this day says that if he had known, if he'd only knew a little bit more about how to draft, he was a heck of a race car driver, Rutman. Yeah. He got he got that from his brothers and whatever you know. But uh. 1984, you're working with Richard Petty. You went at Dover, number 199. Go to Dover. Todd was working for me, and Todd was Todd had been doing tires, and that, and that was one of my my strong suits was matching tires and doing things like that from the days of working with Goodyear and. And uh, and also working with with Harry and and all that, I was a tire man. You know, I, they called me the tire man. I was a tire guy, and so that's the way Todd and Brad both got their start. You know, matching tires and air pressures and things. Oh, anyway, that's when they also wasn't bringing enough tires to the to the racetrack. So I tell everybody, the 199th win was done in the pits. Richard drove a hell of a race, but we had we out tired them. And some one of the reporters one of them said, "What do you mean out tired them?" <laughs> I, said, I said, "Well, I could have said tarred, out tarred them, but I said we uh, we had more tires in the pits than Ken Schrader did, and and we beat Hendricks that day, the big team, you know. But we had one heck of a pit crew, and we had uh, one hell of a driver." And uh, if you don't believe it, look at his record. <laughs> and uh, we came out of there, and Salvino, Ralph Salvino started on me right then. He just couldn't wait. He couldn't wait till the next race. He said, oh, we, we got it now. We got it now. We're going to win 200, 200 win. So the hoopla of what went down at Daytona, which was very special, um, we had a car that um, Richard had actually built, you know, in Level Cross. And it had some things done to it that a guy named Warren Prout figured out the steering geometry and stuff like that. And uh, I'll always be forever grateful for what I learned from that. Richard used to wave it off a little bit, you know, because he didn't want a lot of people to out there to know what was going on with his Speedway program. And so, of course, I, I kept it. I kept it under under wraps. Of course, today is completely different anyway. So, anyway, the engine. We get down there, and so we we were qualified. Either it was Saturday afternoon. Well, I'm trying to think when the race was. Uh, but anyway, 
the morning before or either the day before the morning, the morning before the day, the race day, Robert Yates comes over and he said, how you doing, buddy? I said, I'm doing good, man. I said, we're getting ready to getting ready to get this piece ready to go win a race. He said, well, I got bad news. I said, what's that? He said, well, the gardeners call and told me that they needed the motor out of that car. And I said, uh, Robert, what are you talking about? He said, well, things hadn't been settled up, either with Pontiac or with somebody or somebody didn't uphold their end of the bargain. And so, and Richard Richard denied all that. He said, you know, because he, he, I never got involved with that because that wasn't my program. My program was to get the team together, get the car on the trailer and go race it. So I told Robert, I said, Robert, I'm going to tell you something. And you know it. I said, there's not enough people that you can gather up that can come over here and get that motor out of that car. So you just need to go tell them gardeners that if they want the motor, they can get it after the race. And so that's how it all went down about the big motor and 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 it was this and that and whatever. But I just kid Robert about the uh, big engine. I'd get on I'd get on a telecast or or something like you and I were talking. I said, yeah. I said. Everybody wonders how I won that, how we won that 200th win in front of the president and all that. I said, big as that motor was, I'd have been embarrassed if we couldn't have won that race. <laughs> Robert, Robert, buddy, don't say that. Don't say that in front of people. I said, well, I'm just kidding. He said, I know, but it goes down, you know, that I did. But Robert Yates was, Robert Yates was a true friend, and um, I loved him like a brother, and I miss him. A lot, and but that motor was not big, and it was, it was a legal deal. Richard Petty, as a driver, Richard Petty won that race with his between what's between his two ears, that racing brain he had. What was it like for you when you saw him come across the finish line? Well, first of all, I about I was almost knocked down. I had a little short uh, Italian. <laughs> coming at me like a like a bull in a china closet and he and he comes running and he jumps and not only just hug me but he jumped off the ground and and I had to grab him keep him from falling and break, breaking his back or something and it was Ralph Salvino who was about as tall as he was around yeah right <laughs> right that's the first thing that happened after that a lot of things happened I still have a picture that afternoon, they had the big Fourth uh, of July party uh, in the garage, and of course you you're aware of uh, you know the president was there and and uh, had to walk had the fence all blacked out and and had security guards and and everybody. Well, Judy and I got to walk down and uh, we were led in there with Robert and Carolyn and uh, anyway we were led in there to meet the president and. The picture I have is of President Reagan looking up. He got up out of his seat, wiped his hands off because he'd been eating Kentucky Fried Chicken and wiped his hands off and shook my hand. And I have that picture. And matter of fact, my son Tyler, who's in Denver, Colorado, graduated from Elon College. And I let him take that because that was one of his requests to have that in his, his house and I think a lot of his buddies 
went in and saw that and was a, because that that school does a lot of stuff with political parts right. and all. But that was a big event, and again, uh, it was. A lot of people, and you know how everything is, they wanted to say because the president there, Richard, his 200th win and all that, but it was all about Richard's strategy of how he's going to beat Kel Yarborough at the end of the race. And he might tell you a different story, but the story I know is that when Kel got to him, Kel had a fast car. And Kale, we beat them out of the pits, by the way. We had a better pit stop than they did. And so when Kale got to us, Richard started backing him up. I called Richard on on the radio. I said, I said, you okay? He said, I'm fine. I noticed where he's backing up. He said, just keep, keep giving me lap times. Keep giving me lap times. And so at the end of the race, he had enough left when no Halvern or, uh, you know, when he flipped or wrecked and turned, and Richard had enough to gas it up. And then, when, of course, when Kale came, came up to him, Kale, if Kale had passed us, we, I don't think we could have ever drafted back by Kale. But back then, that was, that was the slingshot. That, was, that wasn't a slide job. That was a slingshot, okay? And uh, I wish I could, we could see more of that. And if they take some of this, um, this downforce away from these cars, we may see the slingshot again. Buddy, you worked with Tommy Ellis in 1985, 86, and 87. How much of Tommy Ellis did you see, and how much did you see of Terrible Tommy? Me and Tommy got along great. I got to tell you a story. Okay. I got to tell you a Tommy Ellis story. It's so, so good. And I thank the world of Tommy. And uh, and I just wish I, I, I wish I still had a relationship with him. He's cool as he was, he was, a, he was a racer, man. But I'll never forget. Went to Southside. Daryl. Back back then, we had a we had a late model car, and we'd take it for personal personal deals. You know, they'd pay <laughs> pay the gardeners. Yeah. You know, whatever. And uh, I think Daryl Daryl got signed autographs and whatever. I don't know what else he got. But anyway, he uh, all I heard was terrible Tommy, terrible Tommy. Well, you know, I was known for uh, from high school all the way through that. That I never backed down from a fight, you know, and and uh, so and uh, and I won a few. <laughs> but, so I get to I get me we unload the car and everybody's checking everybody out and I I looked at two or three guys standing over there looking at the car. I said, "Hey man, y'all tell me something." He said, "Sure. What do you want to know, Gatorade?" I want to find out, where's Tommy Ellis? Oh, point me at Tommy Ellis. He said, boy, you don't have to worry about him. He'll find you. I'll never forget that. He'll find you. <laughs> so with that, I said, well, you know, I might as well go ahead and case this joint and see if I can find him. Anyway, so I walk up there, and he's, sitting there, he's up there doing something to the car or anything. I walked up to him, and I said, are you as terrible as you say you are? He looked at me, he says, yeah, buddy parrot. He said, I know who you are. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. I know why you come down here. That's the way he talked. He said, I'm going to tell you about y'all being here. I know you're getting deal money and all that. He said, but you tell that Waltrip. Didn't say Daryl. He said, you tell that Waltrip, that gate aid car. He said, if he don't touch me, I won't touch him. I said, 
Well, that sounds good to me, man. And that's the way we left it. So with, <laughs> I don't know whether that that led to getting hired by him, or uh, the his boss that that hooed everybody in Richmond, old Friedlander. But I'm gonna tell you something. Tommy could drive a race car, man. We were at Rockingham, and it was I don't know where it was hot or whatever. But anyway. We, the car wasn't working. You know, Tommy, like I said, he could he could drive anything under a mile. I mean, he's a short track specialist. And Rockingham was hard to get around. And I thought I had a good setup on the car. And I believed in myself, and he believed in his self. So he's, he's whining on the radio. I said, not whining, but he would. He called me on the radio saying, this car is junk. This car's junk. I heard it one too many times, and I hollered back at him because I'd, I'd been known to holler at a few drivers. <laughs> I said, look here, Ellis. If you don't want to drive that damn car, you just put it in the garage, and we'll go home eat a hot dog. Buddy Pat, I ain't ever going to speak to you on the radio again. <laughs> That's exactly the way he said it back to me. And I got tickled and everything. And I think after all of it was all said and done, I, I come up. I said, I love you, Tommy. <laughs> you don't love me. <laughs> oh. oh, my goodness. For children with chronic medical conditions, Victory Junction means friends, fun, freedom. That's because we provide a medically safe environment where kids who live in a world of hospitals and doctor's visits can laugh, play, and discover all they can be, all at no cost to their families. Victory Junction inspires confidence, builds self-esteem, and changes the life of every camper who comes through our gates. Find out how you can change a child's life. Go to victoryjunction.org. Steve, I don't know about you, but I don't really know where to start with that interview. Well, why don't we start with the rumor that said <laughs> Buddy Parrott threw a race deliberately. You and I both know that is huge for oh, somebody to be accused of something like that. In all fairness, Buddy did not say specifically who started that rumor other than to say their last name started with a G. Oh, really? <laughs> Such as Jim um, and Dale or Gard Bill Gard Gardner. <laughs> <laughs> that dang Harry Gant, you can't take him anywhere. <laughs> now, Steve, is it even possible to put into perspective such a outlandish accusation? I don't think it's true. That's just me speaking. But it has been done before, and it's easy to accuse a crew chief or a driver of throwing a race. Oh. Yeah. Oh, it has been done before. Well, let's put it this way. Conditions oh. of the race have changed because the driver or the crew chief did something. And the thing they did most was to draw a caution period because they needed it so bad. You ever see the objects flying out of a car? <laughs> no, no, we're not talking about Oh, no, come on, man. Oh, things like That's that. That's not throwing a race. That's just strategy. And then uh, one team reading another one and saying, we need a caution. Have your man spin out 
and we'll take care of you. <laughs> Clint Boyer, are you out there listening? <laughs> no, don't say no, no names. <laughs> yeah, we're going to name names, baby. <laughs> now, Steve, just how bad did that situation have to be that a rumor like Buddy Parrott fixing the 1979 season finale at Ontario, however he would have done that, to help out Richard Petty? Number one, Richard Petty didn't really need the help. Well, that was he a, knew how no, to win a race. Yeah, it was and a championship. It was a very tight race. We talked about it before. It was a very close race for the finish, all the way to Ontario. Now, use your common sense here. Think of the money you get as the champion. Are you willing to throw that away just to give it to another guy who's won multiple championships? The logic isn't there. Yeah, the logic absolutely is not there. Now, Buddy winds up being let go, and up comes Christmas. Mm-hmm. Regardless of how their relationship had worked, I thought it was really cool that Buddy said that Darrell Waltrip wrote him a personal check to pay for his sons, Brad and Todd's Christmas. Right. That's pretty big. They was, to me, that's very big because you've got to consider at this particular time, and particularly in 1980, as I'll talk about later on, their relationship was highly strained, very much yes. so. And for Darrell to take the time and the effort to make Buddy have enough money to cover Christmas presents is a quite a noble effort on his part. All right, let me go ahead and say it. Daryl always claimed to be and tried to be a decent Christian. Now, you don't have to be a Christian to give somebody presents. You know what I'm talking about. But he tried to act the right way. And I think in this particular case, that's exactly what he did. And I think he did it for another reason. I think he knew that Buddy was severely underpaid. Severely underpaid? Yeah. According to scene, Buddy Parrott, as Daryl Waltrip's crew chief at Dargard Racing, was making 300 bucks a week. Now, back in 1980, a little newspaper man like me made more than that. Wow. When you're living on 300 bucks a week, 1,200 bucks a month, you see, that, that math's right, ain't it? Yeah, that's <laughs> tough. So I would like to believe that that was a very sincere gesture on DW's part to help out Buddy, who had, you know, meant a lot to his I feel success. the same way. I feel the same way. It came from another side of Daryl that I don't think uh, a lot of folks saw very often. Now, <laughs> I'm telling you, we could talk for hours about this interview because Buddy was rehired in time for the start of the 1980 season. They go on to win two of the first three races together. They win the season opener at Riverside and then the race after Daytona. But... At Riverside, Dygard fields a car for a guy by the name of Don Whittington. Supposedly, Dygard's going to field a second car for Don Whittington. And at that time, <laughs> two-car teams were absolutely verboten. There could only be one rooster in the exactly. hen house. Exactly. And Daryl didn't like it one single bit. No, he did not. In the February 28, 1980 issue of Grand National Scene, Don Whittington had this to say. I think Daryl is afraid of me, but I don't want his job. Daryl doesn't have a blankety blank <laughs> thing to do with that team. He's just the driver, and he runs his mouth too much. Now, that last part, I mean, that's hard to believe about Daryl Walter. Runs his mouth too much. <laughs> I got news for you. Don Whittington wasn't the only guy to say that. Yeah, well, you know, in that issue, there is an entire page of copy related to this issue. You did a story. Gene Granger did a story. I think you did a couple of stories. And there was nothing but copy 
on that page. There was no picture. People were upset about this deal. Well, uh, that's not a big surprise, given what we've already said about two-car teams. But I can tell you right now, that was just one seed that grew into a much bigger plant, ugly plant, that was the 1980 season for Daryl and Diegard and Buddy. Do tell. I'll tell you the whole story right now where it all got started. Okay. All yeah. Right. yeah. It got started when Cale Yarborough told Junior Johnson he wanted to run a reduced schedule. I was not going to drive for him in 1980 after, you know, all those years together, all that success, three-in-a-row championships and all that. So Junior was on the lookout for a new driver, and he knew what he wanted. He wanted that mouthy old boy from Tennessee. That's what he called him. But he couldn't get him because Diegard had nailed Daryl to a contract, which was solid throughout 1980. Daryl didn't want to be on that team any longer than he had to. And he knew that Junior wanted to have him. He also knew that his best chance to really win the championship was with Junior Johnson and Associates. So therefore, during the course of most of the 1980 season, Darrell spoke poorly about the Gardeners, if I may say so. Every chance he got, he made it known that he was not happy. He resorted to some name-calling. Of course, we didn't print that, but he definitely made his feelings known. But he had no way out of that contract for most of the 1980 season. Didn't see any way he was going to get out of it, and the gardeners weren't about to let him out of that contract. Their business methods were so severe that once they got a hold of something and they thought it was good, they were going to keep it at all costs, meaning Darrell was going to stick to his contract. They didn't care darn about Buddy, to be honest with you. But they did care about Daryl in the sense that we're paying you and we're going to pay you until the contract is up. And Daryl wound up buying his way out of that contract. Let me rephrase that for you. Daryl wound up getting out of the contract because Junior Johnson paid his way out of it. Oh, okay. Junior has yeah. never admitted that it was true, but he's never denied it as well. And the amount was well in the six figures. But wow. Junior did the right thing. I mean, Junior's a pretty savvy businessman. He's not going to spend six figures to get a driver out of the contract unless he sees results. And you know what Daryl did with Junior. More than $300,000 or $400,000 <laughs> worth of good stuff. He won three championships in five years yeah. with that. So Absolutely. I love what you said about Daryl kind of speaking freely that year. And in that February 28, 1980 issue of Grand National Scene, Daryl said, I don't have any idea how good we could be. There has always been turmoil on our team. I would like to go through a season one time without all the bull bleep, 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 bleep. He said that, and then not long after the season started, he's right in there contributing to that turmoil <laughs> for his own yeah. personal goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you, Buddy probably referred it to this. He got fed up with it. I think he got fed up with Daryl because Daryl was not, how, we, how shall we say, cooperative. I don't think Daryl did anything on the track to bring a negative result to the team. He's too much of a competitor. But I do think that when it came time to work with the team behind the scenes or help do this with that or, or this and that with the crew chief, he was not going to be very cooperative because he, he didn't want to be there. On June 19th, Buddy wound up getting fired again for the second time in just, what, six, seven months. Yeah. So in the June 26, 1980 issue of Grand National Scene, Buddy said, I'm very, very happy. <laughs> 
<laughs> and relieved I'm no longer a part of the team. I'm so relieved. Now, at face value, that would seem to be the politically correct answer. Correct. But later <laughs> later in Gene Granger's story, the gloves kind of basically came off. Right. Gene quoted Buddy as saying, when I came back to the team as crew chief, I was working solely for Diegard, not Daryl Waltrip. I'd die first <laughs> before I ever turned another wrench on a Daryl Waltrip car. I forever severed my ties with Daryl Waltrip and Diegard. There won't be a third time. I'm a better person than they are. Well, that alludes oh, to what I tried to say earlier. Man. How do you think the cooperation level with Daryl was? He's not only cooperating with Buddy, which I believe is very true, he's also bad-mouthing the team in an effort to get his own way and get out. That's his strategy. I'd hate to hear what Buddy had to say if he was holding back. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's the Daryl Waltrip, Die Guard, Buddy Parrott story. Another story that Buddy told in this portion of the interview that I did with him, what I love about doing this podcast and going through all the old newspapers are the details. Everybody knows that Richard Petty won his 200th race at Daytona on July 4th with President Reagan in attendance. That's almost a cliche. Everybody knows it. But because of this interview, here's a little detail that maybe people might not know. The day before that race, Robert Yates goes to Buddy in the garage <laughs> and says that the engine in Richard Petty's car, they got to take it back. It's going to be repossessed. <laughs> now, who did Robert Yates work for at that time? Oh, do tell. Diegard Racing. <laughs> <laughs> And I loved, I loved Buddy's reaction. He said, Robert, you don't have enough people in this garage <laughs> to come and take this engine out of this car. You just can't do it. That was Robert's playing a role for Die Guard. And I think my belief has always been that Die Guard was behind this. To plant the seeds of doubt. To plant the seeds of uh, being afraid of something or being called for something. Whether you did it or not. It can place a certain strain on you in competition. Buddy wasn't falling for it. I've told you before that when you got Buddy's hackles up, you were in for a very tough tussle. Oh, I wouldn't want to be on his bad side. Oh, I wouldn't no, either. No, no. Not I wouldn't want day. to be on his bad side now. <laughs> and him almost 80 years old. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> so uh, he wasn't falling for that. Not at all. Now, Steve, last but not least in this portion of the interview with Buddy, what did you think of his... Tommy Ellis impersonation. <laughs> I thought it was Tommy Ellis. <laughs> I didn't know a whole lot about Tommy. We spent some time together to track, but I certainly didn't know him like uh, your Bush series folks did. Uh, but I did hear him many times, and uh, that sounded just like he was a scrappy kind of guy. And uh, I thought Buddy was right on with that. Now, this is what I know about Tommy Ellis, which isn't a whole lot. You know, I wrote the book. Second to none, the history of the NASCAR Bush Series. Of all the Bush Series champions to that point, Tommy Ellis initially refused to talk to me. Really? And Dick Conway, who was the PR person for Slim Jim, was there from Richmond and everything. He put in a good word. And Tommy and I eventually did talk for maybe 30, 45 minutes mm -hmm. for a chapter in the book about his championship. And then at Charlotte, I put together a photo of all the Bush Series champions to that point. Tommy would not come. Really? No, he would not be there. You know, I, I, I have seen and heard Tommy at times 
uh, sounding somewhat obstinate, shall we say, uh, and gruff. But, you know, sometimes that's just the nature of a human being when he's competitive. Oh, I am absolutely, absolutely not taking anything away from what he was able to accomplish on the racetrack. He was one of the all-time greats in the Bush Series. So, you know, Tommy, if you're out there, I love you, man. I truly mean it. (laughs) Don't come after me. (laughs) I'm Rusty Wallace, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, our mailbag continues to fill up with some pretty cool notes and comments and everything. And we got an email this week, and I just want to read it to you, Steve. Gentlemen. Well, right there, it proves that they don't know what they're talking about. So, Gentleman <laughs> and Rick. <laughs> First, I want to say thank you for putting on an amazing podcast. I appreciate the insight that your podcast offers from people that were on the inside of the industry. I was a scene subscriber from June 1986 through mid-2004. <laughs> My first wife wouldn't let me renew. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I feel your pain. Let's just, say, <laughs> let's just say I feel your pain, buddy. And then again, from about 2007 till the publication ceased. About 1999, I sadly had to give up most of my collection as I moved into a tiny apartment and didn't have the room. I, like other listeners, would be interested in subscribing to an online archive when the project passes all the legal loopholes. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. (laughs) The stories and legend interviews are well done and very entertaining. I have nothing negative that I can say about the podcast, but I would like to make a suggestion. I enjoy the stories about drivers, but would like to hear more about mid and back of the pack drivers like Jimmy Means, Buddy Arrington, J.D. McDuffie, and the like. Also, perhaps teams and owners like the Stavola brothers, Ray Mock, Junie Donlevy, and others that didn't get the publicity that Junior Johnson, RCR, and other top teams would see. I look forward to many more podcasts. Thank you for your time. Hallie Emery. So Hallie, here is Steve Wade, who grew up covering racing in Virginia, home of Buddy Arrington, who was kind of the independent driver. I was an absolute cub sports writer in my first job at the Martinsville Bulletin. Well, Buddy is from Martinsville, lived there. He had his home there and his shop there. One day, I got a call. Listeners, you might want to kick back for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the voice on the phone said, this is Buddy Arrington. Uh, I got a brand new car I'm going to take to Daytona. Why don't you come on out of here and see it and take some pictures and stuff? And I sort of stammered and carried on because I'd never heard of Buddy Arrington. And I said, uh, okay, and hung up the phone. Now, I made a big mistake. (laughs) I didn't know where Buddy lived or worked, number one, and there was no Google back then. And number two, uh, there was no uh, caller ID back then. So I'm in real trouble. I promised to go out to Buddy's shop and write about his new car and take pictures of it. I don't know where the heck he is. So I didn't know what I was going to do. Finally, finally, I took it on myself to look in the phone book. And uh, <laughs> think about that. Who looks in the phone book today? You look at it online, maybe. But I did find Buddy's name and address and his phone number, and I called him. Yeah, he told me how to get over to his place, and I went over there, and I was absolutely fascinated because, you know, Buddy had not only had a nice Dodge that he was going to run at Daytona, but his 
garage at his house at the lower level, and he had five or six pristine condition Chrysler boxes. Did he really? Absolutely. Oh wow! And uh, I, I, you know, I, he just collected them. So I had to think up to myself, this guy must be, wow, doing very, very well. That's before I ran into the Richard Petties and the David Pierce and, <laughs> yeah, and the Wood Brothers. Yeah. So that was my start. That's the first thing I ever did for a publication with a racing theme in it at all. And Buddy and I remained friends from that time until the time each of us, you know, basically retired. And there's another story. This one probably isn't as pleasant, but it is... It is uh, funny in its own way, and it is true. At Talladega one year, there were only two cars that track late in a practice session. One of them was Buddy's, and the other was Dean Dalton's. All right, Dean Dalton's another one of those independent drivers. So Dean goes into the first turn, and for some reason he spins out. And his car goes up to the top of the track and rests against the wall. Now here comes Buddy out of the third turn, down the you know tribal, headed to the first turn. And all of a sudden, inexplicably, Dean's car comes off the wall in the first turn. Oh, no. Yeah. Starts sliding yeah. down the track. And I mean, it had been up there for, you know, it seemed like forever. And it slides down the track, and Buddy just can't avoid it. And he gets into a wreck. And he's taken to the hospital. Well, I was on my way to Talladega and had not gotten there yet. So when I got into my room, I picked up a phone, and I called the hospital. And lo and behold, they let me through to him. I didn't think that was going to happen. And Buddy sounded terrible. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, yeah. He said, oh, he was just feeling real bad and sore. and uh, I just can't talk to you right now, but I'll talk to you as soon as I can. I said, okay, but that's fine. We'll do that. He handed his phone over to the orderly or the male nurse or whoever he was and said, well, I have to give Mr. Arrington's bath right now. And <laughs> <laughs> he hung up. <laughs> well, how do I phrase this next part? At the track, a rumor was circulating around the garage area that in the accident, Buddy had lost his uh, uh, manhood. <laughs> I did not laugh at that. <laughs> really? Well, oh, now, I, I, now, that reminds me of a story. <laughs> I, I didn't laugh at it either, but I said to myself, well, you're a newspaper man. You've got to find out what's going on. So now, once again, How are you going to ask that question? Once again, I called the hospital. And once again, miraculously, they let me through to Buddy. And I said, Buddy, now he wasn't sounding as pained as he was yesterday. He was sounding much better. So I knew there couldn't be anything to the rumor. Buddy, I got to ask you something. He <laughs> said, no, it ain't true. My thing wasn't cut off. <laughs> so, Steve, that's either going to give us a million new listeners or that's going to end us forever. <laughs> I hope Buddy doesn't hear it. <laughs> Oh, man. Now, Steve, what was it about Buddy that kept him going all those years? Why did he keep coming back to the racetrack? Well, I have to say uh, his tenacity, his love of the competition, but I don't know how many years he would have lasted if he didn't have one or two or three really good points years. As a matter of fact, he was among the top ten, six or seven, I can't remember which, when NASCAR first came to New York for its awards in 1982. He had run in the top 10 all year yeah. and was fighting yeah. Dave Marcus for a position, six or seven. And uh, many years he was, you know, 10th, 11th, or 12th, back to 8th, something like that. Outside of Richard Sugarless, I always said he was the most competitive, independent driver out there. And he was until prices became so high that he just could not feel the team anymore. 
And on top of everything, he had what is perhaps the greatest hairstyle oh, of duck-tail. all time in NASCAR. A ducktail and long <laughs> sideburn. He looked straight out of the 1950s. Absolutely. Now, you said before we started recording that you also had a couple of Junie Dunleavy stories. Well, this is just one, and then I have a little bit of another. Uh, Junie, being from Richmond, Virginia, had been in NASCAR ever since there was a NASCAR. And he was known for giving young drivers a shot. And Kenny Schrader was one of them. Ricky Rudd was one of them. And uh, Bobby Hillen was one of them. And so he uh, made his way in racing like that, was very successful, in my opinion, with Dick Brooks. And so that's the kind of team that that Junie had. Not everybody who worked for him thought that that was the way to go, that they needed to branch out and do more, but Junie wouldn't hear of it. But at the time, uh, every time I talked to him, I was always taken by his Virginia gentleman ways. You never met a nicer guy anywhere in any sport than Junie Donlevy. So he says, tell him, I'd stop him and say, you know what? It is so nice to have a fine southern gentleman here in our sport. Now, every time we saw each other at every race from that time, <laughs> both of us would say simultaneously, would say the same thing. It is so fine to have a southern gentleman in our <laughs> in our sport. And, just, and we just laugh about that. But then there was a time that uh, I was president of the NMPA, and we were doing the Myers Brothers Awards breakfast in New York uh, up there in the Starlight Roof. And I knew before that ceremony that Junie had won the Myers Brothers Award, and uh, he campaigned forwards for years. And they told me that we, we will get him there. Otherwise, he'd never show up in New York. Had no reason to. Said we will get him there under some pretext. So they got him there, and they told me he's here. He's here. Go ahead and do the award. So I was very privileged to tell everybody that the time had come that the NMPA Myers Brothers Award was going to a truly fine Southern gentleman (laughs) (laughs) who has been in this sport and dedicated his sport all his adult life, and I introduced him as the winner of the Myers Brothers Award. And I tell you what, Junior came up there with tears in his eyes, and I got tears in mine as well. And uh, he said, you know, I knew the Myers brothers. I wow. reached with them for yeah. a long, long time, and this is such an honor. And I said, it's my honor to give it to you, Junie. That's a cool story. Now, Steve, when I first broke into the sport back in 1991, it was hard for me to go to the Flying Aces, mm-hmm. you know, the junkyard dogs of Dell Earnhardt's team, you know. They work for Dell Earnhardt, so, you know, I couldn't approach them, any of the bigger teams, you know. So I got to know some of the guys on Jimmy Means' crew. Yeah. Frank Dries, who was a, just a great guy, always talked to me, always took me in, always answered my questions. During a race, if I didn't have a press box seat, they would let me stand with them in the pits. Also got to know Nick Nicholson, who was just a bear of a guy. Big old beard, big burly guy who was the gas guy for the team. And so that was kind of my end to that team. That was 1991. At the end of the year, we go to North Wilkesboro. They're short a couple of guys. And guess who gets to hold the signboard on pit stops? (laughs) Uh, I think I know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yours truly. So I got to be a full-fledged, kind of, sort of, halfway maybe pit crew member for the day. And, of course, that was the day that Harry Gant was going for five straight wins and almost did it. 
almost did it. And Jimmy ran that whole race, as I recall. Then the next year, I go to my very first Daytona 500. I don't have a press box seat. You can't really see anything from pit road. So I talked to Mike Porter's crew. And I got to hold the signboard for Mike Porter during the Daytona 500, baby. Well, you know, you could do things like that in the days when the, the teams were not sophisticated. Uh, and, and basically... You're saying my work wasn't sophisticated? No, I said Come the on. teams. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so you could do that. Uh, because, and I've said this before, and I don't want the listeners to get tired of me saying it, but things were much different then. They were smaller, and I don't like yours use the word intimate but if that's what it was you got to know these guys and i made it a point as as i went to each and every track over the years i made it a point to get to know some of these crewmen because they made great stories that's where you got your stories that's right yes sir and they yeah. could even tell you what's going on or might even come up to you and tell you mm-hmm. what's going on yep I had a few drivers like that who would do that, just come up to me and say, you got to watch this, you got to watch that. James Hilton was one of them. Buddy Arrington was another. Uh, and, and crewmen uh, would do the same thing. Johnny Bruce from Harry Ganstein and things like that. So uh, that was a, it was a good policy to get to know these crewmen. I think you can do that today if you make it a mission, as a media member, if you make it a mission to do that. But it won't be as easy as it was. Now, when Mike Porter fell out of the Daytona 500, I got to go over the wall and push his car to the garage. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, I was big time doing that. I was going to say, you're a superstar. <laughs> Well, Steve, that about does it for another episode of the Scene Vault Podcast. But before we go, I want to remind our listeners to leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes. And once we get to 50 written reviews, I will pick one lucky reviewer and give that person a copy of every NASCAR book that I've ever written. So I just wanted to share this review that we had on iTunes, and it's a cool one. The Scene Vault is incredible. If you followed NASCAR on its ride to the top, you will love this podcast. It's like the History Channel for NASCAR fans. Oh, I like yes, that. Yes, sir. Very nice. Just heard about it over the weekend, and I can't quit listening. Takes you back to some great times, relive memories, and get a lot of insight on how and why things were handled back in the day. Thanks, Rick and Steve, for making me smile day after day. Ah, uh, you're certainly welcome. What yeah. a great review. Thank you now, very much. Now, isn't that cool? Because that's really what we're trying to do here. Absolutely. We're trying to bring history alive. Well, that, that, that is always the, the, the truth, Rick. And I have an old saying of mine that I've used before, but I think it's very true. The day that NASCAR and its people forget its past, that is the day it has no future. So, listeners... Leave us a five-star rating and a written review on iTunes, and maybe possibly you might pick up some of those books. So, Steve, thank you, man. Once again, it's a pleasure, Rick. Pleasure to be here with you.